chapter 8. I only forgot my Bible on the pew. If you forgot your Bible at home, uh, or maybe you don't have one, um, we just invite you to put your hand up, and uh, Ezra will grab you a Bible, and uh, we want you to have God's Word open in front of you, uh, open on your lap. Uh, I have nothing for you this morning. Um, I have no great wisdom or insight. Um, we come together uh, to hear from the Lord and to open His Word. And so um, He's the one we want to hear from. So Genesis chapter 8 is where we're going to spend our, uh, our time this morning. Um, before we get right into that, I wonder um, how many of you um, did family road trips growing up? Any family road trippers? Come on, yeah, there's a few of you. All right, we, uh, we did family road trips often. Um, to this day, my mom's family all live um, in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, on Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which is a fantastic place to go for the summer. Uh, perfect place to spend uh, time in the summer. The, the lake itself is crystal clear water. You, you could drink right out of it, I'm sure. Um, my grandparents owned a massive house with a sprawling green lawn that would go right down to the water with a white dock out in front. And of course, the boat with the tubing and the skiing and all that and a diving board. We'd spend all day, swimming off the dock, catching crayfish under the rocks. Uh, it was a summer paradise. The problem was getting there. 2,400-kilometer drive, but not just any 2,400-kilometer drive, a 2,400-kilometer drive through Saskatchewan and North Dakota and Minnesota. It was rough. It was terrible. It was so long, so boring. And of course, when you're a kid, that's the worst. Like, I mean, bamboo shoots under the fingernails is one thing, but bored, that's the worst. Bored. And so we would get two hours, maybe, out of Bonneville, and, uh, you know, Lashburn, Saskatchewan is flashing past the window. Uh, and of course, what am I, my brother and I saying, are we there yet? How much longer, right? No, no concept of of patiently waiting as, as we go and, and a sense of um, the, the destination. Are we there yet? How much longer? And, and we'd like to think as we grow up uh, that we grow out of that, that now we are the parents. Um, we're the ones in, with, with the wisdom and the patience and, uh, and we're, we're beyond that. And yet as I read the story of Noah, I've got to admit I'm just not so sure. I'm just not so sure. Have a look with me, Genesis chapter 8, um, verses 1 to 19, we'll look at today. The, the second half of the, the story of, of the flood of Noah and the ark. Um, so last week we looked at um, the end of chapter 6 and all the way through chapter 7, and we saw the, the rise of the flood as God was um, rolling out this act of, of uncreation, bringing judgment onto the world. This week in chapter 8, um, we see the flood decreasing and, and God um, rolling this out as an act of recreation. So follow along with me. Um, Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth. The waters subsided. The fountains of the deep, the windows of the heavens were closed. And the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the waters abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened a window of the ark that he had made, and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to rest her foot, and she returned to him and, so, and to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. And so he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, 
in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 600th year, uh, sorry, 601st year, in the first month of the first day of the month, the waters were dried from all the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living creature, uh, every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Would you, uh, would you join me in prayer as we turn to God's word? Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness towards us. Lord, in this account of the flood, we see your righteousness We see her wrath. We see her justice against sinners. And we are sinners. And yet, Lord, we also see your grace and your mercy. We see your plan unfolding to make all things new. Lord, give us eyes to see the truth of your word. Lord, you know our hearts are so often hard. Our ears are so often stopped. God, would you... Um, open our ears, would you soften our hearts that we might be shaped and formed um, through the, the work of your spirit, through your word. God, may you be glorified in us this morning. I pray for those who are, who are downhearted, who are wounded and, and weak this morning. God, that you would lift them up, that you would heal their wounds. Father, I pray for those who are proud, who are rebellious against you. God, would you graciously crush them this morning that they might see um, their need for a Savior and your gracious provision of it. Lord, I pray that if there's anything I have to say um, that is not from you, that is not true to your word, that that those words would fall to the ground. Um, God, that your word would go forth. It would be your truth proclaimed this morning to the glory of your name. We pray, amen. As we look at the first portion of this text, the first five verses of chapter 8, the first thing we see here is that our God is a remembering God. A remembering God. There is so much to that statement. That, that is actually the pinnacle of uh, the story of the flood. If you, if you map it out, um, the story of the flood is this giant chiasm, which is a, a Hebrew um, poetic kind of uh, literary structure, um, and, and, and it all points up to that statement, God remembered Noah. We'll be unpacking that, really, for the rest of this morning and, and through next week and beyond. Um, those four words, God remembered Noah, but God remembered Noah, if you're counting. Um, God remembered. Remembered Noah, remembered the animals there in the ark. Um, God made this wind blow over the earth and the, the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep, the windows of the heaven are closed. At the end of 150 days, the water has abated. Now, if you're like me, you're starting to do the math. How long have they been here? What's going on? Let me help you out. Um, Moses gives us these very specific dates of when Noah entered the ark and when he came off the ark um, in reference to, to how old Noah was and, and uh, these calendar days. And so we can, we can actually calculate um, from, from going on the ark to coming off the ark is, is most likely 370 days. That's a long time. Um, so as we look at these other periods, the, the 40 days of the water rising, the 40 days of the water descending, the seven days of waiting here and there, um, it becomes clear that the 150 days in, in chapter 8, verse 3, um, is the same 150 days uh, from chapter 7, verse 11. 
Uh, it's just different perspectives. So it's 150 days the, uh, the water triumphed over the earth, and then 150 days um, that the water, or after that 150 days, the water had abated. At this point, the ark has come to rest. Notice, not on the mountain of Ararat, but in the mountains of Ararat. Uh, it landed in that mountain range. Um, the good news is, um, everybody knows exactly where the ark landed. Any archaeologist, explorer, surveyor, internet researcher worth his salt uh, knows exactly, has irrefutable, undeniable evidence uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt exactly where the ark is. The downside is not one of them agrees with another. Um, and, and so the fact is we don't have a clue. Um, they all have different proofs. They all have different local legends that make it sure. They all have some special insight into scripture that they've figured it out, um, and none of them have. Um, I think most likely the ark will not be found, and I'm okay with that. Um, unlike everything else, the ark wasn't buried in silt and pressure of water and fossilized like so many things were. Um, seems likely to me the ark would have been disassembled. Let's, you had a lot of lumber there. We need some houses. Um, let's go. Wouldn't have maybe just been left the remainder of it rotted away. Um, I don't think we'll find it, and, and I'm okay with that, and I, and I think that matters. Um, some people get really excited about biblical archaeological, archaeological finds, and, and some of them are, it, it's great, it's interesting. They give us a little bit of insight. They give us some kind of historical background at times, um, but let's be clear, they, they don't add to Scripture, Right? In the Bible and in the Bible itself, we have all we need for life and godliness. That's what God intended for us to have, and we, and we have it. Anything outside of that uh, is extra. It might be neat, but it's, it's extra. So it doesn't add to the Bible. Secondly, um, contrary to how we often speak, they don't prove the Bible. It doesn't prove the Bible. The Bible is already true. This is God's word we're talking about. He is true. His word is truth. That was never in question. And, and actually, if you're looking at a, a piece of metal dug out from the ground and thinking, now I believe the Bible is true, then I don't think you understand what the Bible's about. Because yes, the Bible is historically true, but infinitely more significant, the Bible is spiritually true. The most significant truths in Scripture are not things that you're going to prove by finding a, an outline of a house or a coin with a name on it. And so all that to say, I don't think they're going to find the ark, and, and I'm not terribly concerned about that fact. At any rate, the ark came to rest somewhere there in the mountains of Ararat. And then we're given uh, some of those dates, the, the first day of the 10th month, uh, the tops of the mountains surrounding become, uh, begin to become visible. Now stop and think about this. Um, this is 224 days since the, the fountains of the deep broke open, uh, almost seven and a half months. Um, I think we have some ladies here who are probably close to that seven and a half months pregnant. Ask them how long seven and a half months is. Uh, that's a while. That's a while. Um, closed up in this big wooden box Maybe um, think of it from the perspective of these sons' wives, seven and a half months locked away with your in-laws. How's that? Tossed to and fro by the waves, not seeing the sun, not breathing fresh air, um, not knowing what is going on outside except that I'm pretty sure all of my friends and neighbors and coworkers are dead. This is where Noah's at. 224 days, darkness, storm, chaos. And then we read chapter, one, or chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah. That's huge. Now I find it almost comical. The Lord doesn't tell Noah that. This isn't, this isn't God's words to Noah. It tells us that God remembered Noah, but Noah was not informed. Noah's just bobbing through the waves, wondering, waiting. 
According to the, the narrative, to this point, God has been silent. Nothing's been given to Noah. He's not giving Noah progress reports. He's just waiting, wondering, no doubt fearing, beginning to question, God, what are you doing? What is all of this? Where does this end? Seven and a half months, Lord? Did I miss some detail? Was there an, was there an exit I was supposed to take? But God was remembering. And God's remembering is never without effect. Think of how God remembered Lot. God remembered Rachel. God remembered Israel in Egypt. God remembering is, is not just God calling something to mind, right? It's not as though God forgot. He didn't wake up with a start and go, oh no, the guy with the beard in the boat, like where did, I, where did I leave him? I hope he's okay. No, God knew he was there. God remembering is God now focusing his special attention there and beginning to move to the next phase of his plan. Before we get to that phase, let's just stop there. Our God is a remembering God. The God of Noah, who remembered Noah in the ark in the middle of the chaos, that's your God. That's our God. The God who seemed silent. The God who, from, from Noah's perspective, must have seemed so distant, so far away. So uninterested in, in his fear and his worry and his suffering. Was actually watching. Was actually Numbering the days as he worked out his perfect plan, he remembered Noah. That's our God. How often, church, how often we find ourselves in the place of David, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Translation. Are we there yet? How much further? How much longer? You ever ask that? I do. I do. Trials come. Things get hard. My heart so easily slides into doubt. God, where are you? I'm not seeing the good in this. I don't understand where you're going. I don't know if you have a plan. God, where are you at? God, are you seeing this? God, are you just going to let this happen to me? Do you even know where I am? Do you even care? I'll tell you, one of my lowest moments in life, beyond despair, absolutely overwhelmed and, and crushed by a weight of just multiple things in my life that had just blown up, spiraling out of control, and, and I was sitting in a room full of pastors, and I don't remember what I shared, but it was fairly cryptic, because there's stuff I just couldn't share publicly. And one of the brothers came over to me, put his hand on my shoulder, and he read Exodus 2.25. Not a verse I expected. Not a verse I had turned to before in, in times of need, but has since become such a precious scripture to me. Exodus 2.25 simply says this, God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. He knew. That's it. God sees and he knows. As Rita was sharing earlier, the God who, who saw Hagar. The verses before that speak of, of God hearing the groaning of his people and, and remembering his covenant to them. It all flows into the richness of that passage, but that's not what my friend read to me that day. Just verse 25. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What a blessed reminder. How often we need that. On one hand, it didn't change anything. None of my problems went away. None of my sorrow uh, was gone. On the other hand, it changed everything. Because God knew. Because he was there. I often turn to Philippians 4. Present your request to God and the, the peace that passes all understanding will, be, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
And, and that's such a rich passage, and yet I, I think it often falls flat as we lay it out somewhat formulaically. But the end of verse 5 is where he starts. The Lord is at hand. So do not be anxious about anything. God knows. God remembers. He's there. Our God is a remembering God. Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe you feel like you have been abandoned on the ark. You're bouncing helplessly through the waves. The, the, the chaos surrounds. It's dark. It stinks. I don't like it here. God, where are you? It's been a long time. You haven't heard from the Lord. It's tempting to wonder if he cares. Know this. Know this today. He remembers you. You're not forgotten. The God who remembered Noah remembers you. Our God is a remembering God. What a, what a glorious hope. Secondly, our God is a reminding God. Our God is a reminding God. I don't, I don't want to spend uh, as long here, but look at verses 6 to 12. Let me, let me read it for us, remind us of this passage. The end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and sent forth a raven. It went out to and fro until the waters dried up from the earth. Then he sent, out, uh, sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place for her foot, and she returned to him uh, and to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. And so he put out his hand, and he took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And so Noah knew that the waters had just subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. I think what we see here is God's gentle encouragement to Noah. Not only is our God a remembering God, but he's a, a reminding God. Forty days later, the ark settled after, after those 264 days. Finally, we must be there now. No, 40 days later, he sends out a raven. Um, the raven, it would seem, is of no value. The raven just goes to and, for, to, to and fro until the waters have, have dried up. They don't see uh, the raven again. Um, a raven will feast on floating corpses and rest itself just about anywhere. Um, Noah then sent out a dove. A dove has significantly less stamina, a, a shorter flight range. Um, and a dove is particularly picky about what it eats and where it nests. So first, the, the dove came back and found no place to rest. So Noah waited another seven days, another long week, sent her out again. This time, the dove returned, and not empty-handed. The dove returns with a freshly plucked olive leaf. So verse 11, Noah knew the waters had subsided from the earth. Seven days later again, then once more he sends her out, and, and this time she doesn't return at all. Apparently she found rest. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Just one more hour. Just one more hour. We can see the signposts along the road, as we used to tell our kids, just, just two more veggie tales, right? We're getting close. We're getting close. Last week we talked about the ark as a picture of the cross. God revealing his justice and his wrath. Warning that sin will be punished. God is wrathful against sinful rebellion. And he shows his, his wrath, but he also shows his mercy and his grace. By setting aside Noah, God had favor on Noah rescued him, bringing him safely through the judgment upon the ark. It's this, this living picture, this promise of how through the final judgment, God will save his own. He will rescue for himself uh, a people through the storm of his wrath in Christ. And this dove then carrying the olive, olive branch, this is the first sprout of life. This is 
this is the, the, the first promise of, of new life on, on the other side. It's the first fruits, the very first contact they've had with this new world on the other side of the flood. It's not, it's not the fullness of life. It's not everything they're looking forward to. It's just a glimpse. It's just a small piece of it. But it guarantees the rest is soon to come. We're close. There is life out there. This goes beyond just salvation. He's not just keeping Noah alive through the storm. This is a promise of restoration. This is a promise of life out the other side. Coming back to Jesus, as Jesus is baptized, he undergoes the the symbol of, of death and resurrection, that picture of salvation and The next thing that happens, Matthew 3.16 says this, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The Holy Spirit resting on Jesus like a dove. I don't think that's significant. I think think there's some connections here. God's intent is not only to save us from death, from the eternal death of his wrath, but to give us new life. Not just to rescue us through the storm, but to give blessing and fullness on the other side. And the Holy Spirit given to us is this token, is this promise of the new life that is to come. Salvation itself is described as new life, a new birth. It's Jesus speaking to to Nicodemus. He says, you you need to be born again. You You need new life. From where does that life come? John 3, 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The Holy Spirit gives this new spiritual life. This new beginning. It begins with Him. The Holy Spirit is the one who does that work of of regeneration in our souls. Bringing us out of spiritual death and sin into spiritual life. Alive to God. And for all those who are brought to life by grace, who come then through faith and confess their sins and hide themselves in the ark that is Christ, listen to Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In him, that's in Jesus, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit in us is this new life that we have from him and and, and that he produces in us that becomes to us the, the dove with the olive branch. It becomes a guarantee. It becomes this, this assurance of the promise that we have. Our inheritance is coming. That full eternal life awaits. How did did Noah know there was life outside the ark, that there would be goodness on the other side? The dove came with the olive leaf. How do we know there is an eternity ahead? The Holy Spirit has come in us and given us life. This is our reminder. This is our guarantee. The Holy Spirit who produces in us this new life in Christ. So what does that look like? How How do we see that? How do we find that? It's a heart that loves God and hates sin. It's slowly but surely being sanctified and and conformed to the image of Christ. It's increasing in love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's our olive branch. That's our our reminder. His assurance to us that, that there is a full, complete, new life ahead. Do you have that assurance? Do you have that confidence? As you're there in the storm wondering, are we there yet? Do you know that you're even on the road there? Do you know where you're going? Think carefully about this. That's a serious question with eternal consequences. True salvation is not saying a prayer. It's not making a commitment to Christ. It's not asking Jesus into your heart. It's infinitely more than that. 
True salvation is a spiritual resurrection from death to life. It's the birth of a new person. The old has gone, the new has come. It is a radical transformation. The death of the man of flesh and the birth of a new creation. I want to say this with a certain amount of gentleness, at the same time with with deadly seriousness. You cannot affirm your salvation by looking back at a prayer you prayed. You you can't affirm your salvation by, by opening your Bible to see a date at which you made a commitment. That Mary very well may have been the day that the Lord saved you, and it's, and it's good and right to remember that and rejoice in that. That's not what I'm saying. But that can't be the foundation of your assurance. If you were to walk into the, to the doctor's office and, and ask for, for confirmation that you were still alive, he's not going to ask you what day you were born on. He's not going to ask you for a, a copy of your birth certificate. No, he looks at the person standing in front of him right here, right now, for a beating heart and breathing lungs. Tragically, the way the church, I think, has been careless, the way we've talked about salvation over the last 75 to 100 years or so, I I fear that we have handed out birth certificates en masse. Anyone who wants one, take one. Anyone who who said they they don't want to go to hell, here's a birth certificate. Anyone willing to to pray this prayer, here's a birth certificate. Anyone willing to to come on up front, here's a birth certificate. You get one, you get one, you get one, you get one. Everybody gets a birth certificate. And every time they come and question their, their spiritual state, I don't know where I am before the Lord, we say, well, check your birth certificate. Didn't you get one? Did you pray the prayer? Did you write it in the back of your Bible? That in itself is no proof of spiritual life. The proof of spiritual birth is an ongoing spiritual life. Not what did you think or what did you say on that day. Are you alive in him today? Do you have spiritual life now? Now that's not sinless perfection, right? So far from it. But it is conviction of sin. It is ongoing repentance of sin. It's a a growing in the love for for Christ and and an increasing hatred of sin as we wrestle with it, as Paul did. Sometimes I do what I don't want to do, and the thing that I don't want to do, I do. But it's repentance, seeking to love the Lord more. It's a growing love for His Word, a desire to to live in His light, in His truth. Sometimes slow and steady growth in the fruit of the Spirit. It's a love for the church. It's a love for the fellowship of the saints. And if those things are present in you, that's what we're talking about. That's the new life. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. And that new life in you is a promise. It's a guarantee of something much greater. The new life that has begun is the, is the guarantee of a whole new creation that is promised. Right now, if we have this new life, we're, we're living this, this new life in the old world. We're living here as exiles, as aliens, as strangers. We don't belong here. We're out of place as a new life in the old world. But soon and very soon, the new world is coming. So we ought to find great hope and peace and confidence in that. This is our dove and our olive branch. This is the Lord's reminder it's coming. God's gentle, gracious reminder that we will not be left here wondering and waiting forever. Now there are two ways as you wrestle with that. Maybe you're on the other side and you're thinking, I don't know. I don't know if I see that in me. And, and, and there are times where it's good and appropriate to be introspective, to, to give that some serious thought, to, to examine your heart and your life. Do I, do I love God and hate the sin that continues to plague me? Or frankly, do I hate God and I love my sin and I hate that he condemns it? 
Talk to people who know you well. Do you see the, the, the fruit of the Spirit growing in me? Are you growing in a love for God? Is there a desire to, to read His Word and grow in that? There's room for that careful introspection, but there's also a time where you just say, I don't know if I see it. I don't know if I've been hoping in Christ. So hope in Christ. So follow Him. So read His Word. So pursue Him. So call out to Him to save you. And that new life that begins, that's, that's our hope of a, of a day to come. That, that, that we're, in the, we're in the last hour. We're in the last hour. This drive will not go forever. The truth is, church, this, this new world is, is coming. And we're almost there. That brings us to the last portion of this text. God is a remembering God. He sees you. He remembers you. God is a reminding God as we see him at work in our hearts. We have this hope of, of eternity, of, of better days to come. And then gloriously so, God is a recreating God. He is a recreating God. This is the end goal right here. This is the, this is the value of what it means that God is remembering Noah. We've overlooked a few things carefully and intentionally. I'm waiting for this moment. I'm I'm stoked about this moment. I've, I've been waiting for this moment for a few weeks now. Um, we already saw last week the coming of the flood is, is God's judgment against sin. And, and we saw in, in chapter 7, it's, it's presented as this, this uncreation, right? This very clearly this set up as this undoing of the created world. I just want to walk through that again. I want us to see that clearly. The, the original creation narrative begins with the whole earth, what? Covered in water. God is uh, then separated the waters from above, the waters from below, brought out the dry land, filled the dry land with, with animals and, and creeping things and birds and creatures. And then finally God created man and then he blessed them and told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Of course, they rebelled into sin, incurred his wrath and his righteous judgment. And as sin increased in the earth, God's judgment came and he reverses that order. The last thing he did was blessed men. The first thing he does is to curse them, to warn them of his coming judgment, their destruction. Then he closes the expanse that between the waters from above, the waters from below, the fountains of the deep burst open and the windows of the heaven open. Dry land then is again submerged and the man and the animals and the creeping things and the birds that God had created to flourish on the land are destroyed. And, and once again, the world is covered in water. So the first half of the flood is God uncreating and the second half of the flood then is this picture of the recreation. We run it again in the other way. In the very beginning of creation, the earth was covered in water. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Remember that? Genesis 1-2. 8-1, God made a wind. Ruach. Same word as Spirit from chapter 1, verse 2. God had a wind blow over the surface of the water and the waters subsided. God then created the expanse between the waters above, the waters below. Uh, chapter 8, verse 2, the, foundation, uh, the fountains uh, of the deep and the windows of the heaven are closed. And God created dry ground, 8, 5, the mountaintops again become visible. Day 6, Genesis 1, 24, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, following the flood. Genesis 8, 17, God says, Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is carefully organized to communicate that God is recreating his world. Noah becomes a, a kind of a, of a new Adam, this fresh start, and the world is fresh. The question is, why? Why does God go through all this trouble of laying out this recreation or uncreation and recreation? And the answer is something that, that, that we very carefully overlooked last week. Back in Genesis 6, verses 17 and 18, this is absolutely key to the whole thing. This is key to understanding all of Scripture. Genesis 6, 17 and 18, For behold, I will bring 
floodwaters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. God says to Noah a very unusual thing. I will establish my covenant with you. Now, in English, the word established could mean one of two things, right? It could mean um, I will begin, I will start, I will, I will initiate a covenant. We, we could use establish that way. It kind of builds from the ground up. Or... It could mean to strengthen, to hold up something that already exists. That's not clear in the English. It is clear in the Hebrew. There is a technical Hebrew term for the beginning of a covenant. When you start a covenant, when you, when you make a covenant, you karat a covenant. You cut a covenant. Uh, it comes out of the, the ceremony from the ancient Near East. They would literally cut animals in half and lay them to either side, and you would walk between the animals as a way of saying, if I fail to uphold my part of the covenant, let me be like these animals. That's how serious this is. And so you, you karat a covenant. That's to, to begin to initiate a new covenant. On the other hand, a number of times through Scripture, we see a different phrase, to hakim a covenant. That's the word used here in in Genesis 6, to hakim, a covenant, does not mean uh, to begin a new covenant. It very distinctly means to uphold, to fulfill a covenant, to carry out and keep an existing covenant. Our God is a covenant-keeping God, a covenant-making God. That's how he relates with his creation time and time again. He is a God of covenant and the first usage of the word covenant is right here in 6.18. And it's really odd that the first usage of the word covenant is not God making a covenant, but God keeping a covenant. He's promising to use Noah to keep, to uphold, to carry out an already existing covenant. And then we go, now it makes sense why Yahweh, the covenant name of God, was all through that section of creating man. The inescapable implication, God, God's original relationship with, with Adam and Eve was a covenant relationship. When God created Adam and Eve in his image, and he gave them dominion over the, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the animals of the earth, and he commanded them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it, subdue it. He was making a covenant with them. Where does it go from there? Into the seventh day, the day of rest. And God puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the perfect haven of rest. This is an implicit, if not explicit, covenant. God is saying, this is the relationship I'm going to have with you. This is how I will relate to you as my creation, as my people. You are going to be my image bearers. You're going to be my representatives on this earth being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and having dominion over it, bringing structure and order here. And I will give you rest. I will be with you. His presence is there. I will provide for you. He gave them everything they needed in abundance and beauty through the Garden of Eden, and I will give you rest. As Adam and Eve then rebelled against that covenant relationship, they refused to be God's image bearers, refused to be his representatives. They decided to be their own representatives. I will decide what's right and wrong. We're going to do it our way in rebellion against him. They break that covenant and they are removed from the presence of God. They are driven out of the garden. The place of God's provision is taken away. The place of peace is removed. The perfect rest is replaced with thorns and thistles and toil and pain in childbirth and, and conflict in marriage. And yet, God is faithful. God has made a covenant and he intends to work it out. And in Noah, we see God is still intending to fulfill these promises. 
He still intends to have a people of his own who are his image bearers, who, who dwell, uh, and for him to dwell among them and provide for them and give them peace. A world without sin, a world with rest and life. This is the whole storyline of Scripture. This is right from the beginning. We see this is where it's going. This is what God is planning to do. And so as the world descended into sin and suffering, Noah's father prophesied Lamech, uh, Genesis 5.29, and he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief. Peace. Peace. Relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. It's relief from the curse. 618, it's reiterated, God saying, I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. Chapter 8, we see the, the world is being recreated, cleansed by the flood. Noah coming forth is this new Adam figure in a new world. Just peek ahead a little bit. There's, there's tons of this showing up again in, in chapter 9. And the, 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 the image of God is there again. Um, verse 1 opens this way. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It's a new beginning. It's a, it's a fresh start for creation. Now, some of you are real smart, and you've read this before. And you've studied ahead a little bit, and it didn't take long to catch on. Something's wrong. It didn't work. It's not the world we live in. God did new creation. It didn't take. So is this, is this it? Is that, is that what we're supposed to believe? Our world today doesn't look much like that new creation. It looks a lot more like it did before the flood. It looks a lot more like the day when, when every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. What's going on? Well, it doesn't take more than even a single generation. We find Noah drunk in his tent. Sin begins to infect and corrupt this newly restored world. Has God failed? He tried and it didn't work? No. No, 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 no. God said he would establish his covenant with Noah. He would uphold, keep his covenant through Noah, not that he would finish his covenant in Noah, in Noah and through this, this uncreation and recreation, uh, for one, God is preserving the human race. He's kept some alive. He's not wiped them out completely. That would be the end of that covenant. There's no way to fulfill those promises if he's destroyed the human race, but he preserves them. But he's also communicating. This, this wasn't meant to be the answer. This was meant to be a promise. God is saying, this is what I will do. This is how I will save for myself a people for my name. And all through the Old Testament, so clearly throughout Genesis, through, through Exodus, through, through David, um, all of these promises, these covenants that God makes, they, they build together from one on top of the next, on top of the next. God is progressively revealing, this is how I'm going to do it. This is how I will save a people. This is how I will fulfill that covenant. And it's all leading forward, pointing to one thing, Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. It's all about Christ. These covenant promises are driving forward to Christ. He began the fulfilling of those promises uh, when he came the first time, providing the ark, the new and better ark, dying on the cross as the only way to cover sin, to rescue a people through the storm of God's wrath and, and judgment out of the kingdom of darkness and into his marvelous light. And he will complete the fulfillment of those promises when he comes again, judging the world once more, this time not with water which cleanses the surface, but with fire that, that purifies to the core. And those who are rescued through that judgment will also be purified. Use the term glorified. 
given these new imperishable bodies, every remnant of sin in us wiped away, gone. And then God will do his ultimate work of recreation. Um, I don't know about you, I grew up thinking of heaven as this weird, floaty, glowing cloud space, um, harps and, 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 and angels, and I didn't really get excited about that. The biblical picture of eternity is this world restored. It's this world made new. It's the, it's the, it's the world after the flood. That's God's analogy. Free from sin, free from death, free from suffering, but, but nonetheless tangible, real world. And it's in that day, after the return of Christ, that God will once again and finally and completely fulfill that covenant that he made from the beginning to be with his people, to dwell among us, to provide for his people every good thing. And he will give us perfect unending rest and peace. It will be the final and forever coming of of the ultimate, uh, greatest, unending, utmost Garden of Eden. This is what we look forward to. This is what we hope in. That's the the destination of, of summer paradise. This great and glorious fulfillment of all the covenants of God Church, this is your God. This is the God that we serve. This world can be such a long and wearisome journey, so full of painful potholes and cliffs. Every one of us reaches that point of calling out, God, are we there yet? Are we lost? Is this the right way? Have you forgotten me? Do you see me? How long is this going to take? He remembers. He sees you. He is a God who is a remembering God, and he's a reminding God. We look at his work in us. We see his spirit at work, and we know that new day is coming. And he's a recreating God. That new day will be glorious. Would you pray with me? Father.